0: Amen. Well, what an encouraging time it's been already. Thank you so much, music team. uh, It's probably been a minute since some of y'all heard that chorus, huh? When we all get to heaven. I grew up singing that one. Well, we're in the book of Proverbs this morning, the book of Proverbs. And as I've mentioned over the last few weeks, the book of Proverbs works a little bit differently than other books of the Bible. Our typical pattern here at Sunrise, if you're new here or visiting with us or maybe haven't been with us too long, is we take a book of the Bible and we just go verse by verse. So we go one verse, if we cover verses one through seven one week, the next week we pick up in verse eight, and that's just what we do. But the book of Proverbs doesn't work exactly like that because it's a little bit scattered and different people have had different theories about the structure and is it some complex literary design? in the book of Proverbs, and I think some people maybe press it a little to try to find that design. I think it's just a collection, especially when you get to chapter 10 where we have the Proverbs of Solomon. And so chapters 10 through 31, it's really themes. And so what you have is you'll have a a particular theme addressed in one place and then another place and another place. So last week, we picked the theme of humility and pride, and we just sort of pulled that string, and we just look at it through the book of Proverbs. And this week, I want to talk about our words, our speech, the things that we say. Now, the title here is Bad Words, Less Words, and Good Words, and that part in the middle where we're going to make a case, actually, that it might be good if we talked a little less in general, and I find a Kind of felt a little bit of a conflict because as I started putting this together, I created a chart and I just went through Proverbs and I found every proverb that I could find, at least, that dealt with our speech. And I found 110 of them. And so I thought, you know, I really can't preach like a really long sermon when one of my points is you should, probably shouldn't talk as much. So I felt a little conflicted. So I've been doing some editing And I think we got it distilled down to something that's hopefully helpful for you today. This topic is so relevant. It's relevant because we all talk and we all have to talk. Language is one of those features that sets us apart from the rest of God's creatures, right? We can speak. We can communicate. Language is an amazing thing. And what the Lord did at Babel to confuse the languages is an amazing thing still today. Words are important. And what we'll do at the beginning here is look at the power of our words and just why is it so important, the things that we say? I think you know this inherently, but I want to drill down on that just a little bit. You've probably all heard the phrase. I'm sure you grew up with it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. Is that true? Yeah, it's not true. This may be one of the great, greatest lies some of us were told in childhood. I think the biggest lie I was told in childhood was by my uncle that if I ate watermelon seeds, what was going to happen? Yeah, yeah. And then, you, like, the plant was going to grow out of your ears. That's what my uncle loved to torture me with that. And so we're out family get-togethers, you know, cutting watermelon. And I'm pretty meticulous because I did not want a watermelon growing inside of me. We're told these things in childhood, and I think it's sort of a coping sort of thing. Like, hey, don't worry about what they say. It didn't physically hurt you, right? And we kind of pass it off as if, well, that's not that important. It's just words. But is it? I think we all know that it's not just words. I think the saying should go something more like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words hurt much worse. They hurt much worse. If we run around the room this morning... I wouldn't do this in a public setting, but just imagine here for a second. If we went around and I said, tell me about your greatest hurt in life. Just sit on that for just a second. What would your answer be? Just think about it. My guess is that for the majority in here, there could possibly be some exceptions, I understand. My guess is for the majority in here, it's something or a series of things that people have said to you more than physical harm that's been done to you, although that's quite possible, and I recognize that, and I understand that, and I sympathize with that. My guess is, though, even if it were some kind of physical harm, there, was, there were words accompanying whatever harm was done to you by someone else, and that hurts just as badly. Words matter. Words matter. Words are so important. And so many scriptures deal with our words, I want to go straight to what Jesus said about this. He actually had quite a bit to say about the words that we use. He says this. He's confronting the Pharisees at this point, and this was right after he called them a brood of vipers, which that's just, that's a pretty hard thing to say, especially to a group of people that knew their Bible, and he's saying, you're on the wrong side of this. You're the seed of the serpent, not the seed of the woman. Like, you're on the wrong side of... Biblical history, redemptive history. Then he says this. How can you speak good when you're evil? You're hypocrites. For out of the abundance of the, of the heart, the mouth speaks. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That is a gut punch, isn't it? Give an account for every careless word that you say. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is inside of your heart is made known by the words that you say. Very simple principle. We could say it like this. Your words are windows into your heart. What you love is exposed by what you say. And so as we begin to look at this issue of our speech and words, the burden of Proverbs isn't just to say, say these things, don't say these things. The burden is to say, what kind of person are you? Are you a wise person or are you a fool? Because that's gonna be expressed, all right? So the things that you say don't necessarily change who you are. It's an expression of who you are. You see the difference? It's an inside out sort of thing. The point isn't just to find the word bank of acceptable speech for Christians. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to talking about bad words. Let's talk a little bit more about these Proverbs in general, and just the power that's assigned to the things that we say. Proverbs 10 and verse 11, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. 25, 1425, A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. The power of life and death are in our words that's how Proverbs sees it. It's not just saying the right words. Sometimes it's saying the right words at the right time as well. Has anybody ever said something true, but your timing was just horrible? We've all been there at some point. You can say the right thing at the wrong time, and it's actually the wrong thing to say because it's at the wrong time. And so the burden of Proverbs is then you need to learn the fitting thing to say for the moment, and that's harder than just memorizing a series of responses. To speak wisely isn't just to memorize an outline. It doesn't work like that. What kind of person are you? So wise speech isn't only about saying what is true, it's about saying what is right at the right time. That's really what we're after. One of my favorite proverbs is this one, Twenty-five, eleven says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver a word fitly spoken saying the right thing at the right time knowing the words to use knowing the things to say there's a couple others i want to put these up now these proverbs are going to take a little bit of explaining and thinking on our part but i want to show them to you because they stand right beside each other and it might be confusing. Proverbs 26 and verse 4, answer not a fool according to his folly. Yes, lest you be like him yourself. Okay, so step one, don't answer a fool according to his folly because you're going to become foolish just like him. Don't engage him at that level. But then look at the next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, so which one do I do? Do I answer the fool according to his folly, or do I not answer the fool according to his folly? And my definitive answer is, it depends. (laughs) It depends. Yes. What's fitting for the moment? How do we figure this out? We need to be a person of wisdom, and that's why this task is a little bit harder than just memorizing an outline, isn't it? It's hard to know what to say at the right time. When do you engage that person, and when do you not? I think there's actually a little bit going on here that's actually pretty profound. I think Jesus perfectly illustrates this. There's a story in Luke chapter 20, and the Sadducees come up to Jesus and they ask him a series of questions about the resurrection life. So Jesus has been talking about the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed, he's going to rise. He had been teaching about the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so there is no such thing as the resurrection life. And just because it's what preachers are supposed to do when you talk about the Sadducees, it helps us differentiate. The Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife, so they were sad, you see. All right, now you got it forever. So he's interacting with the Sadducees, and they come up with this absolutely ridiculous scenario. They said, what if there was this woman, and her husband dies, and so then her brother marries her, and then he dies, and then he dies. And then he dies. You can see they're just, it's, it's ridiculous. And Jesus is, I'm sure, in a very sanctified sort of way, rolling his eyes at them. So they get to seven. Seven brothers, they all marry this girl. And they're like, okay, Jesus. So there's this resurrection life thing, right? So she's married to seven different guys. Which one is she going to be married to in the resurrection life? And I think Jesus, he doesn't, answer them according to their folly. He, he doesn't engage at that level. He doesn't dignify the question with a response, really. He doesn't validate. What he does is he exposes their worldview. So he says, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know what you're talking about, There is no resurrection life. He's not entering into this debate. Well, it could be the first one because, you know, this and it could be or it could be the last one and like he doesn't enter into that debate because that would be to validate the actual conversation they're having. He steps steps outside of that and then he applies verse five and says, I'm gonna I'm gonna run this out, run a reductio on this and just say, You don't you guys don't even know what you're talking about. You don't understand the scriptures. And so he exposes their worldview and the ignorance that they actually have. So it's not sim- as simple as just learning a proverb. It's learning how to be wise and learning how to read people in situations and to think critically. That's what Proverbs is really getting at. Hebrew poetry is so much more descriptive and earthy than most of the poetry most of us interact with. Just a verse later, two verses later, from this, check out this one. Like a lame man's legs which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. So, well, how do you make someone wise? Well, here, learn these proverbs. It's like, well, not really. That's not what's going to do it. Not unless it's first affected your heart. You can't just hand somebody a tool and all of a sudden they're a mechanic. You can't just hand somebody a golf club and they're going to be a scratch golfer. It doesn't work that way. Many of you, if you have some hobbies out there in in your life, you'll see a guy that's like just getting into a hobby and somebody with some means and they go buy all the best of the gear of everything. Like, well, that doesn't mean you're going to catch more fish or hit your drive longer or any of that. It just doesn't mean that. So, just grabbing some proverbs and sticking them into somebody's life isn't going to help. So, our words are extremely important. But the type of person we are is really the emphasis of Proverbs. So with that, let's get into it. Bad words, less words, good words. Selected Proverbs, and our outline is built into our title today. It will be bad words, less words, good words. All right? I debated a little bit on exactly which order to put these in. Do we talk about the bad words and then less words or good words, or do we caution about... Less words first, or you could kind of argue it any direction, but this is where we settled. And this is actually one of the harder parts of, and, and one, of the, one of the things that's a little bit different for us, where we're not going verse by verse by verse, it is a little bit different because you are just sort of collecting data rather than just preaching verse by verse. Um, it is a little bit different. So this is how we'll form it this morning. Bad words. So I want to talk about some ways that our words can go wrong now, I don't have the text of every one of these on there for you, because I do like you looking at your Bible, and I like hearing the pages flip, although many of you are using digital versions, and I know there's, there's actually an app that makes that page-flipping sound, so it, it's kind of musical to my ears to hear your pages flip. So I want you to just be finding these. I'll have each reference up here that we're going to talk about. I'll just have the reference, though. Let's talk about bad words, some ways that words can go wrong. Now, when I say the word, when I say the term bad words, I know many of us probably immediately think of a word bank. There's just a list of words that Christians aren't supposed to say. And you can say something really close to that word, but as long as you don't say the word, well, then you're fine. But you can say something that sounds really similar, or you can abbreviate the bad word, but you didn't actually say the word, so you're good you're good. That's not really the biblical idea of speech. The biblical standard of speech is actually much higher than a word bank. There, there is no, you know, cuss word section of your Bible that says thou shalt not say these particular words. But these are kind of crass, and depending on who you're around, you can say these. These are good words. It doesn't work that way. The biblical standard is, what's your point in speaking? Are you trying to give grace to those who hear or not? Trying to tear down or not, and so just to be clear, I do think there are certain words that culturally Christians just shouldn't use. All right, I am a fan of that, but the biblical standard is not simply a word bank. All right, so let's talk about some ways that our words can go wrong bad words, manipulation. Manipulation, look at 328. He says, Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Don't play games with people. Don't manipulate people. This is a control game. He doesn't. It, it's very ambiguous, and I think intentionally because it applies across a huge spectrum. Don't play control games with people. If you have what your neighbor is asking for, if you're a boss and your employee is asking you for a particular thing, don't wait until tomorrow to send it to them just to show them that you can do that. Don't do that. If you're a parent and your kid asks you for something, just don't wait just for the sake of waiting. Don't try to manipulate situations and show people that you're in charge. There's no reason for all that. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I'll give it. When you have it with you, just make good on what you're doing. What are you doing? Why are you speaking? Why are you doing that? It's manipulation tactic. Next, Futility. Look at chapter 9 and verse 7. Give me a second to find that one. Chapter 9 and verse 7. We've talked about the different characters in Proverbs. We have the simple one, the young one, the naive one. And the naive one is heading down the road. And they're going to turn one direction or another. They're either going to turn down the path of wisdom And so that's what Proverbs is written to, in particular, younger people, encouraging them to choose the path of wisdom. But there's another direction, and there's another voice calling out in Proverbs, and that's the voice of folly or foolishness. And so you have wisdom on the one hand, and you have folly on the other. And a little bit beyond folly, kind of graduate school folly, is what Proverbs refers to as the scoffer, the one who is just outright against God. And against everything good. He's a fool that is practiced in his foolishness. So we get some interaction with the scoffer here. Chapter 9, verse 7 Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. <laughs> and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. How does it go when you reprove somebody who is just outright against everything? That bitter, angry person who doesn't want to hear anything from you, and you're like, hey, just some friendly advice, how's that go? (laughs) Verse 8, do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he'll love you. Ah, so how we actually handle reproof and correction is actually revealing of our hearts of what kind of person we are, or at a minimum, what kind of person we're acting like at the moment. The wise man loves for proof because it shows him I'm on the wrong path. The scoffer he don't want anything to do with it. I've done ministry with teens for a number of years now and sometimes I'll hear these conversations that start to bubble up and I'll stop them sometimes and just say, "I want you to think this conversation through. Is there any hope that this ends in a good spot?" Like, is there, like, think about it. Is there any hope that we're actually going to make progress on this thing? Most of them are like, no. And then they go back to arguing about, you know, whatever meaningless thing. It just doesn't do any good. It's futile. I think the online world has really exposed this for us, hasn't it? Many of us feel like this. Cancel all my meetings. Someone on the internet is wrong. Like, I am the arbiter of truth. It's my responsibility to fix this thing on the comment section or your social media outlet or whatever that is. I, I, I browse through some of those things sometimes and just think you are trying to correct a scoffer and you are not going to get anywhere. You should pick up a hobby and go do something else. Go cut the grass, go for a run, I don't know, go make some bread, like anything. Just get, remove yourself from this because it's absolutely futile. You're not getting anywhere. Just don't even try it. Bad words manipulation, futility. Let's talk about gossip. Let's talk about gossip. I want you to go ahead and jump straight to 26 and verse 20. We're going to spend a moment in that. I'll just read these other texts for you. So go straight to 26, 20. And as you're finding that, let me read 11, 13 and 25, 23. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. So the wise one chooses not to share information sometimes, even though they have information to share. 25:23. "The north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue, angry looks. Backbiting tongue." And then 26 and verse 20: "For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Oh, that's so descriptive and good, isn't it? The words of the whisperer are like delicious morsels. When you find somebody that's just sharing some dirt that's just so good, and you're just eating it up like delicious morsels going down into your body. It's so dangerous, though. Let me just define some terms here. Very simple definitions, not original to me. You've probably heard these before. Gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you'd never say to their face, all right? Flattery, on the other hand, is saying something to someone's face that you'd never say behind their back gossip, you're sharing something about someone that you really don't want them to know that you shared. Flattery, on the other hand, is buttering somebody up for some ends and means that you have in mind. So we're talking particularly about gossip here, although flattery has some overlap with these concepts. I want to drill down on this just for a moment and ask the question about gossip. What is gossip and how do we stop it? I have some diagnostic questions, and I'm just going to float these out there. And, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it. As my dad used to like to say, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks is the one you hit. All right. So I'm not aiming for anybody. Just going to lob some questions out there. And if I hear you bark, I'll know. (laughs) Diagnostic questions. Ask yourself these questions if you're sharing some information or if you're in the habit of sharing information, lots of information, what am I trying to accomplish by sharing this information? What am I really trying to do? Many of us don't stop to really think about the things that we say, to actually take inventory of your words. Why why am I sharing this? Next question. Does this person need to have this information? One of my mentors, uh, Chuck Finster, Still keep up with Chuck to this day. He used to ask the question. He said, "Does this person need that baggage about whoever it is that you're talking about? Do they need that baggage? Do you want that thing that you know about this person? Do you want that rolling through their mind the next time they come and shake hands and say, "Hi." Do they need that? Is that helpful and useful? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I'm just asking some questions. Next, am I sharing this information to make myself look better or gain attention? Is that possibly a motive of mine? I just want everybody to know that I'm on the inner ring. Lewis wrote a lot about this whole like political dynamics at work, and he, his context was, was in the academy uh, teaching so he talked about the inner ring and how gentlemen in England of his age were always trying to press into the inner ring. And your whole goal was to get as close as you can to the action where the cool kids are. It never really changes from middle school. It just, we just kind of grow up and get paid a little more to do it. The inner ring, I, did, I just want to show that I know what's going on. Like, hey, I, I know. Did you hear? Did you know? I know what's going on. You don't really know what's going on, do you? And you're just kind of showing that I've kind of arrived at this inner ring of information. Careful. Next. This is based on a verse that we'll look at in a, little, a little bit later in Ephesians 4. Is what I'm sharing giving grace to those who hear? Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 4, don't use your words in an unwholesome way, but speak in a way that's fitting that gives grace to the hearers. Am I trying to give God's grace? Am I giving the impression that God is good and the gospel is true by sharing this information. I'm quite sure that this is the number one destroyer of both relationships and also church families and unity in a church. I'm pretty sure this is the number one destroyer. So my encouragement for you, for me, for all of us is let's be a church, let's be a people who refuse to put logs on the fire, all right? Let's just refuse to put more charcoal on the fire of gossip. Let the telephone game stop with you. Or to say it another way, be the weak link in the gossip chain. All right? Break it with you. Stop it. Don't let it continue on. And that refers to what we listen to. It also refers to what we say. Both directions. All right. Bad ways that we can use our words. Manipulation, futility, gossip. Next, let's talk about rash words. Words that are spoken rashly, without careful thought and consideration. 12.18. 12.18. It says, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We'll talk about this uh, again in a minute when we talk about our Good words. But feel the weight of that illustration there. The rash words are like sword thrust. Just take a minute before you speak. Just imagine that you're running around town and every time you talk, every time you speak, there's little daggers going out. Like, do you know where those things are landing? Do you know what you're doing, By what you're sharing, by what you're talking about? I know there's some folks in our church that like to shoot guns. And in shooting, there's a rule of shooting. You're responsible for everything that bullet does. So you have to know your target and be sure what's downrange. You're responsible for that. Your words are like that. It's like a loaded gun. You're speaking. Do you know your target? And Do you know what's downrange? Do you know what your words are going to do? Have you stopped to think about that for a minute? You can't reel them back in, can you? You're the master of the unspoken word. Once it's said, you're its slave. You you can't reel them back in, although there's probably plenty of times in our lives where we've said something, and then three seconds later, we are like, come back, and it won't come back. You can't, you know, you can't edit a conversation. It doesn't work that way. Lastly, another way that we can use our words wrongly is this nosiness. Jumping in something that we don't have any business in. We could spend a sermon on this, I'm sure. 2617. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. (laughs) Hebrew poetry, I love it. It's so descriptive. Now, when you think passing dog, don't think, you know, fluff ball doodle something. Um, Think mangy, nasty, stray dog that you're walking down an ancient city and you see these packs of dogs and you just go running up to one of them and you try to grab it by the head. This wild dog. He said, that's what it's like when you see a quarrel that's going on in an argument and you just decide to insert yourself into it. It's like, buddy, you are asking for it. You're just asking for trouble. Don't jump into that. So there's all sorts of ways that we can use our words poorly. Which leads us to the next point pretty naturally. We should probably consider speaking less. That's a good application of this. Probably consider speaking less. Estimates are that we talk somewhere between 7,000, 20,000 words a day. I think it depends on the person. There have been all kinds of studies on this trying to figure out exactly how many words we use in a particular day. And I don't know how you even go about figuring that out. There's also been studies that have been done to try to show that the difference between men and women and who talks more. I'll leave that to you. So we talk a lot. That's my simple point in that at least 7,000 words for most average people. Why should we consider maybe not speaking quite as much as we do? Well, 1019, opportunity for sin increases Notice I said opportunity. It says this, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Sin is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I was blessed in college to have some excellent roommates. Um, I keep up with these guys to this day. We message back and forth regularly. And this was a proverb that we talked about quite often, actually, in my little friend group. I'm not sure we practiced it that great, but we talked about it. When words are are not lacking sin is right there be careful what you say next our sin our words can demonstrate folly can demonstrate folly i'll read these for us 12:16 the vexation of a fool is known at once but the prudent ignores an insult 23 a prudent man conceals knowledge but the heart of fools proclaim folly. 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. This vexation of a fool, 12.16, vexation of a fool, the frustration of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. A fool can't just play it cool when somebody insults him, when something happens. They can't just... Sit back and have a measured response. They have to let it out. You know right away when you insult a fool because he blows. You poke him and he blows. It's not godly. It's not wise. But the prudent ignore an insult. The prudent know, it's best for me not to engage at this level. Partly because of what we just talked about, that the scoffer doesn't want to listen. Look, this also isn't original with me, but it's wise You don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. Just remember that this week. When you're invited to an argument and somebody says something to provoke you, you don't have to go. All right? Attendance is not mandatory. Just decline the RSVP and move on with your life. Scroll to a different page, have a different conversation, move along. It'll be okay. All right, so opportunity for sin increases, and then it also demonstrates uh, folly. Let's move on. It also demonstrates our ignorance. Demonstrates our ignorance. I want you to look at 1728. And we'll just look at that one for this text. 1728. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. (laughs) Isn't that great? A fool is thought wise. a, A fool is thought to be wise if he just stays quiet. Better to be thought that. We've probably all been in a situation where we felt a little out of our depth. Has anybody ever felt like that? You're in a room and like, you be- it becomes apparent that everybody in the room's just got a little bit more information than you do about whatever it is that you're looking at. I felt that way this summer. I went to a bioethics conference up at Trinity uh, Evangelical School and I didn't really realize totally what this was Uh, bioethics concerning um, the right and wrong as it relates to medical care and medical decisions. Well, I didn't really totally get it, but this was all like medical doctors, PhD, you know, research uh, people, people flying in from all over the world that have written papers and you're involved in government policy and like high, high level things. And I'm kind of looking around and they had a little thing where you can see the attendees and like what they do. And I'm like, I'm just going to try to not get sniffed out here. Like, that's my strategy. I feel a little bit comfortable talking about the ethical side, but when it gets to the medical world, I'm like, I got nothing. I'm I'm just going to try to be considered wise here. I'm going to try to apply 1728 this week um, of my conference. Just stay quiet. Well, We need to move along the less words. I'm going to I'm going to move us through, and we're going to just talk about the good words now. Although 1817 is so good, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. How many times has that happened? You're convinced of something, and then somebody else speaks to the issue, and all of a sudden you realize you're not as right as you thought you were. Don't live in an echo chamber. So it could shut us down all right, well, if our words are that dangerous, maybe we should just not talk at all. Um, that would be an interesting application after this service today. Everybody's standing around and we just kind of look at each other and like, well, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to speak something foolish or careless. So we're just all going to kind of stare at each other. Well, that's not really the point either. What we need to understand is that words are life-giving. A couple of the verses that we talked about earlier Um, The the question I asked you to consider at the beginning, think about a time when you've been deeply hurt. I I want you to think of the flip side of that, though. Think about a time when somebody came along in your life and said the right thing at the right time. Just how encouraging, life-giving that is for somebody to come along. And sometimes it doesn't have to be profound. Sometimes it can just be a simple gospel reminder. Sometimes it can be a simple affirmation of that relationship that you have with them, just a simple reminder of God's love. That's what we want to be about. So our words are life-giving. And then our words are also, they have an ability to diffuse conflict. I do want you to look at this. So go to Proverbs 15 and verse 1. Very, very well-known proverb here. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's hard to argue with someone who won't argue with you. You ever notice that? Sometimes you'll try to provoke somebody just because you're kind of bored and looking for an argument. If somebody won't engage with you, it's really hard to argue with them. Our family, on our trip out west this summer, we were in at a couple of points, uh, places where we in grizzly bear country, and they tell you, you know, if you encounter a bear, you're supposed to like make yourself big, make a lot of noise, you know, try to run the bear off. But if you get charged, in the unfortunate event that you get charged, what you're supposed to do is just crawl into the fetal position and just act as like helpless and harmless as you can and just crawl into the fetal position and pray um, a lot because you're not going to beat the grizzly. That would actually be really hard for me. I think I'd go down swinging, but that's just me. They advise you don't, don't. You know, don't engage with it because that's going to encourage it and provoke it more. Sort of like a cat playing with a mouse. It's like the more you engage, the more it's going to get riled up. Well, the conversations are that way too. When you get somebody and they're just fired up and they come at you, if you just diffuse it with a very, very simple, gentle, kind word, it just has a way of setting a tone over that conversation. Very similar. Fifteen four. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. It's like Eden-like language. You're restorative in your words, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. You can set a tone with your words. It's amazing how we can set a tone with our words. Parents with little ones, they're watching. They're watching. They're watching your tone and how you respond to different things that happen. Have you ever noticed if like a little, little one, you know, a little toddler, they're running around outside and they fall down. All right. Now, one of two things can happen there. You can jump up as a parent and you can call nine one one, start pulling out ice packs, you know, put a splint, like, you know, and, and you can just kind of like lose it. And, you know, are you okay, honey, sugar bear, come here and, you know, give him a hug. I've never called anybody that in my life. <laughs> Promise. <laughs> I take the, I take the next approach, which we'll talk about in a minute. And if your reaction is sort of over the top, you know what happens to the kid? They start crying like crazy because they're like, I guess I'm really hurt. And then they just, they let it out. But, you know, and I'm not saying be insensitive to the kids, uh, but if you, you know, assess the situation, see if there's any actual damage or if their pride's just a little injured from hitting the ground, you pick them up, you give them a hug, you dust them off. Like, you're okay, buddy. I I think you're, I think you're good. You know what happens? They just kind of, Yeah. Yeah, I think I am okay. And I think this is sort of an application of this idea. You can, you can rev up a situation or you can diffuse a situation just by your tone and response. And you have this ability all across relationships, everywhere that you go. I can turn this into a thing or I can diffuse it and make it much more rational and reasonable. So let's end with a verse that we've talked about a couple of times. I started out speaking about the, the nature of the Proverbs, it's not just say this or do this. The nature of the Proverbs is you're this kind of person. All right? So I do think that even if you did not believe in Christ this morning, even if you didn't believe this was the divinely inspired word of God, which I do and we do as a church, even if you didn't believe that, you could actually find some practical helps here, like in verse fifteen one. A soft answer turns away wrath. Like, that could be helpful in a business meeting for anybody. But that's not really the emphasis. The emphasis is on the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The emphasis on, is on who you are. So Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. It's very Proverbs kind of language here. What's fitting? You have to know the person to know what fits. That it may give grace to those who hear. This is a profound reality that you have the ability to actually speak grace into a situation. But we need to understand here too. Ephesians 4 comes after Ephesians 3. That's what you paid to hear today, right? Mm -hmm. Ephesians 4 comes after Ephesians 3. What's been going on in Ephesians? He didn't just come out of nowhere with the application. What he did is he took three chapters to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it changes hearts. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; it's the gift of God. The whole three chapters, first three chapters, are about the work of God in our lives. And then he starts with the application in chapter 4. What he's saying is that if you're a people who believe this, you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've had your life changed by him, then it will have an impact on something like your speech and he makes application to a lot of other areas in this chapter as well. Today is not a clean up your life or clean up your speech day. Today is a day to examine our hearts and our words serve as windows into our hearts. What do we really love? Because that's being exposed by your words. It's diagnostic. Our words are diagnostic of what's going on inside of us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the book of Proverbs. It's so profound, and we can only scratch the surface today of your word and what's here. There's so much more that we could explore. There's so much more application that could be made. So, Lord, I pray that you would use your word. I pray that even a study like this would whet everyone's appetite to go home and to find these Proverbs, to search out the scriptures to look for other themes, to look at how you have given instructions for all of life. It's amazing what you've given to us. Lord, maybe there's some here this morning and they would say their, their words indicate that their hearts are in a bad spot. Maybe that's because they've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ and had their lives changed by you, never believed the gospel in the first place, or maybe they've just allowed themselves and allowed cares and concerns of the world to pull them far, far away from you and your purposes and your word. Lord, I pray that you would use your word, use your truth, help us as a church family to respond well, to be the weak link in the gossip chain, and that we would use our words in a way that honor you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.